ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Well, hello. This is where the big boys play. Back again. I'm here with Chad. How are things, Chad? Going pretty good. Uh, glad to be back doing this. It's been a couple of months, and uh, I know real life gets in the way sometimes, but uh, glad to be back doing another podcast. Yeah, we never intended the gap to be two months, um, but there were a number of circumstances that got in the way. First of all, we um, <clears throat> we set our sights on doing this uh, show from February '87, Super Towns on the Superstation, and um, it basically took me a whole week to get it through um, through various means. And um, Chad, you you tried for basically two weeks straight to get the show and couldn't do it, right? Yeah, it was a, a complete disaster. <laughs> where uh, I'd, I'd honestly would have a portion of the show or have other things and I finally just sort of threw in the towel and said it was not meant to be because uh, I wasted honestly probably about five hours of my <laughs> life just trying to get the show and looking at it. So Yeah, there, there were a number of weird things with that. I mean, the upload was five gigabytes big for an hour show um, and I couldn't play it straight off. I had to use this uh, fancy conversion tool to get it into a video format that my computer could actually play. So, yeah, there was a. I also probably spent about four or five hours um, trying to get the show, and then basically wasted an hour of my life watching it. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, uh, I mean, uh, Brian, uh, who is not with us today, uh, and I, we planned to just do the show, um, uh, you know, just me and him, and we, we had this kind of joke that um, Chad only turns up to the big shows, that you only do uh, Starcade these days, Chad. <laughs> I uh, think I'm putting that theory to rest with the uh, show we're actually discussing today. Um, so, uh, Brian has had a, a number of kind of family-related issues, um, uh, various different things, that has meant that he's um, basically not been able to, to do this. Um, and finally, uh, I've also had a few things going on. I've changed job a couple of times. Um, I've, uh, I'm now an English, uh, an English lecturer, full-time one at a university. Um, here in the UK, so at least I'm putting my PhD to good use, uh, he says, as he's about to talk about wrestling for two hours. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, I think just, just before we get into Crockett Cup, um, I wanted to just, because it took so much of my time um, going through this Super Times stuff, I just wanted to have a, give you a very quick summary of this. Um, I have my notes for that show, which are a good eight pages long um, and I uh, hold on a second I need to just get them in some sort of order here I won't go through them all because I, I think that would be tiresome um, but I'll just give you a quick rundown of what that show was so it was a little bit like the um, the previous kind of super show that they did um, an hour special but uh, unlike that one it was actually come coming from um, a tour that they were running so it came from like seven or eight different towns. They were in Washington, Philly, St. Louis, Atlanta, um, Hollywood, uh, Florida. Is there a Hollywood in Florida? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, uh, it's actually where uh, Hulk Hogan um, was kind of around there, sort of in the Clearwater, sort of South Florida, that area. Um, that, that may be... If, I don't know why, but I always remember, I think, it was either Clearwater or Hollywood where in the old WCW magazine they did this big uh, article on Hogan one time, and I remember as a 12-year-old kid they had his boat, he had this like awesome boat with a mural airbrushed <laughs> on it of himself, and it said like Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Uh, with his picture on the side of the boat you, you know that, that he docked. I always found that humorous and kind of self-serving that you have your own picture on your boat. But 
you, you know the house we see in Hogan Knows Best, is that in Hollywood, FLA? Hollywood? I, I, yeah, that, that's in the general area. Yeah, that should be around that same kind of like nook down in South Florida. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the geography down there because uh, when I go to Florida, I either go to the Panhandle area of the Gulf Coast on the Gulf of Mexico or uh, just down to Orlando where Disney is at. Um, so I'm not that familiar south yeah. of that, but they should be pretty relatable but, to but each other. Hogan was always built from coming from a beach, wasn't he? Was it Miami Beach, Florida, or Venice Beach? No, Venice. That was Sting. Sting is from Venice Beach in California. Yeah, that's in uh, California. Yeah. Uh, there is a Venice, Florida. Um, just Venice, Florida. But uh, no. yeah, they always. Put him is from Venice Beach, California. I, I think Hogan was from Miami Beach, though, right? Was he built from there? I can't remember now. I, I think it was from Venice Beach, also. Oh, from Venice, yeah. Introducing but uh, it'd be uh, California. Okay. Um. All right. So he was built from coming from uh, Cali as well, then. Hogan. Yeah. Even I, though he was I know. Uh, I know. DBRC had a seasonal residence uh, somewhere. I think he, his seasonal residence was in. Miami Beach, Florida. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was around like I, I can't remember whether they said maybe Palm Springs or Sarasota Springs, kind of one of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was one of those kind of trendy towns. I know the Yankees, um, <laughs> New York Yankees, started doing their spring training down there, and uh, George Steinbrenner, their owner, he had a big kind of residence down there, so I guess they sort of cashed in on that with the 80s when they built him from that. I always loved that little <laughs> sort of Nick and DiBiase's character, how he always yeah. had a spring re- I never, I mean, the only thing I remember is the spring residence. I don't know where his <laughs> winter residence or anything else was. Um, so, basically, what we got on, on this show was a, was a match from each of the towns. So we had Barry uh, Wyndham versus Arn Anderson from Philly, uh, which was interesting. Um, uh, what else did we get there? Um, so we got... Hold on. We got... In fact, they went to even more places than I just mentioned. Birmingham, uh, Alabama, Pittsburgh, where uh, Brian is from, Jackson, uh, Charlotte, of course. So I mean, they went uh, around the horn with this particular um, particular show, and uh, what happened with this uh, Arn versus Barry match? Um, we get, uh, I think, Arn won with a gourd buster. I think. I can't tell. My note, my notes are that good that I can't tell. I said a flash pin, sunset flip. Arn hits. I can't tell if Barry got the win, um, and then Arn, Arn hit the gourd buster afterwards, or if Arn got the win. I suspect Barry Windham got the win. The, from a booking point of view, that would make sense because he was the new um, babyface coming in from from I think Florida. Um, then we get uh, a kind of video package of uh, Washington D.C. and we get Jimmy Garvin versus Brad Armstrong. Um, and I, I've also starred here the first appearance of Gary Michael Capessa, who is, uh, as, as I'll mention later on, is an announcer, a ring announcer I really love. I love Gary Michael Capetta. <laughs> um, then we have, um, what else do we have here? Uh, we are, oh, we get an awful clip of the Rock and Roll Express in concert. Um, and um, Ricky Morton, uh, in fact, is so bad that um, I may actually have to um, put in the audio clip because uh, there's a good um, kind of three or four minutes of Ricky Morton singing this uh, it's got a rockabilly song.
why did they keep, um, I, I don't understand why they kept going back to that well of where they tried to act like these guys were literally rock and roll stars. It just made them look stupid. I don't know. It, it, well, the crowd were kind of into it. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of perplexing because, I mean, maybe it's just one of those things where, like, we're so far removed that once you look at it kind of in a vacuum, you look back and you're like, man, that's terrible, where if you're in the moment, it's kind of, you just go with the flow, but... So, so unlike the kind of clip we got from Starkey, they actually give a full kind of mini concert here. We, we actually um, got two songs back to back. Uh, Morton... <laughs> I've got a note here that even what during this portion, Robert Gibson kind of just conspicuously was on the side, didn't really do anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and Morton, the Cup has uh, <laughs> has one of my favorite, honestly, probably Robert Gibson moments that we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, but even in the context of playing in a rock band, um, Gibson doesn't really pull his weight. He <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Uh, he That's lets very uh, nice. He lets his partner, partner do all the work. Um, then we got. Uh, then we're in St. Louis. St. Louis. Uh, or St. Louis. Um, I've actually been there. I had a Ted Cruz frozen uh, yoga when I passed through. Um, uh, it's the Mod Squad versus the Batten Twins, um, who are in fact Bart and Brad. The Batten Twins. Bart and Brad Batten. Um, and I, I've just got a note here that that is the most obscure match um, that I've, that we've se- actually seen uh, going through these shows so far. Um, uh, and this match is mainly used to hype the Crockett Cup. Uh, the Mod Squad are actually part of the Crockett Cup. More, more on that in a minute. Uh, what else happens here? Um, it, it wasn't a terribly exciting show, to be honest, but uh, given, given that I did bother to watch it, I did want to... Uh, we get um, we get a Paul Jones promo. He's with Rude Manny Fernandez. He's got his moustache at this point. Uh, I've just written here, Jones is not a great uh, promo man. Um, yeah, I still... I, I know in the comments uh, at Pro Wrestling Only, kind of an R thread, and then some other threads I've read, there, there's some... Uh, Defenders of Paul Jones and some kind of big fans of him, but I just, from what we've seen, I just really don't see it. And it's not so much as really his feud with Jimmy Valiant. While I think he was fine for that feud, I think you could have put multiple other individuals into that feud and it'd been just as effective. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting a bit of backlash from, uh, from, you know, uh, the fact that we ragged on Paul Jones so much, but here's the way I see it. Okay, um, I think there's a certain amount of nostalgia talking there as well, like a uh, fond memory of just the fact that he was a manager at that time. And the the analogy I'd make is that um, if you take a uh, one of the kind of WWF uh, managers, like a like a Slick or a Mr. Fuji, um, people have fond memories of them, even though that even though really Fuji couldn't cut cut a promo and Slick wasn't that, I mean, I, I don't know, he, he's good for a laugh, I think, but he's not a great, you know, <laughs> he's not a great manager, really, is he? Um, no. But it, it, I think there's an element of that, you know, that is people's memories, uh, rather than an objective assessment of um, how good these guys actually are. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know, you know, growing up in Georgia, Paul Jones is somebody that really made his name down here, and uh, there's some definite fans of him. Uh, I know, for instance, he's not as prevalent just in some of the old-time wrestling fans I've talked to around here as somebody, say, like the Assassins or yeah. even the Armstrongs. Uh, now, that a lot of that has to do with the fact that I've been located and lived in Marietta, which is where the Armstrongs are from, so they're certainly a higher profile there than uh, in other areas, even within the state. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I would say there is some of that where you're kind of looking through that with rose-colored glasses, looking back. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't want to say that too much because if anybody's ever guilty of that, it's probably me more than anyone else. But uh, yeah, I mean, when we get into you know all of this that we've been covering so far, of course, is before my time. But eventually, you know, years down the road, when we start probably getting into the NWO era stuff, uh, I know there'll be some of that resonating with me. Yeah. Um, and even like with Goldberg, once we get that far. Um, so, so just carrying on. I don't want to the whole show to be taken up by the super towns. Um, but uh, just, just, just looking, what else is on this? Uh, oh yeah, even, um, Ivan Koloff. Um, he, this was the match in the Hollywood. Um, the Russians are taking on the Rock and Roll Express, and uh, Ivan Koloff has got a new partner yet again, Vladimir Petriov. <laughs> do you um do you know do you know about this guy of uh, Vladimir Petriov? I had to look him up based off the clip that uh, we saw of him in the Crockett Cup. I was not familiar with him at all. I looked him up on Wikipedia. Uh, didn't remember him at all from, I guess, his WWF run. Uh, so I guess he was sort of mostly like a kind of flash in the pan. Yeah, now to talk about partners. that uh, Ivan had Nikita Koloff to start off with. Then he had Barry Darso. Now he's, yeah. now he's down to uh, now he's down to Vladimir Pietrov. <laughs> I mean, how like what's going to happen next? Is he going to be with Boris Zukov or? Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of bad when Nikita is the uh, peak of your partners, as far as honestly, in a lot of ways, from a work rate standpoint. Yeah, if you've had multiple partners, and Nikita was the best one. <laughs> One thing I will say for Vladimir Pietrov is that um, he is pretty stacked. He's pretty well built. Big guy. C- certainly bigger than uh, Barry Darso, who was pretty big at this time as well. Um, so, uh, this this match again is used for uh, to hype the Crockett Cup. Um, we get a big USA chant uh, for the Rock and Rollers. Um, not, I mean, it's a typical Russians match. Uh, Ivan takes the brunt of the beating. There's a chain involved. Blah blah blah. Instant DQ. <laughs> um, then we get um, now. Now this is a this was interesting. Um, we got, we got a rather long segment where um, local Baltimore promoters, including um, the uh, kind of manager of the Baltimore Arena, <laughs> were um, we got a tour of the Baltimore Arena basically. Um, hyping the Crockett Cup, uh, and um, he he talks about uh, how they had to bid against you know every other major stadium in the country to get this uh, wonderful show. <laughs> um, we also had what else did we have? We had a Tully versus uh, Dusty Rhodes uh, TV title plus ten grand from uh, the Forum in LA. Um, we had what else did we have? Um, we had quite a lot of uh, rematches from Starcade on this show, uh, which is a shame, really. Uh, the Flair versus Nikita for the world title. Uh, Nikita's pretty over here, um, and uh, I've written that it's some achievement that Nikita went from being um, such a heel to getting cheered against Flair in Charlotte uh, in 1987. I mean, that's no smaller that's no small achievement uh, to be cheered against Flair um, in his hometown. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, and then we get the Midnights versus the Road Warriors scaffold match again, as if as if uh, the first one wasn't you know enough. Um, this is the this as it happens would be the last uh, time we see Dennis Condry on a major show. Now, what what was the date of this show? Do this you know, this was or of the actual match. It's February um, '87, and I I actually have quite a bit of detail on Condry. Um, from my intense reading of uh, a Wrestling Observer over this time period, because I was interested to see exactly what happened there. Yeah, but, um, I'm interested to see. I know uh, we'll get to that, but I know what Cornette talked about on his shoot interview, but I haven't read any of the Observers or any information from that time, so that'll yeah. be interesting. Now, now you've got to remember with the, with the Observers that a lot of it is guesswork on Meltzer's part. Um, right. As we'll, uh, well, as we'll, as is e- easier to see in hindsight, I guess. So let's um, 
let's move on to the Crockett Cup now. That was Super Towns. I don't think we missed a lot there by not doing that. Yeah, and one uh, one quick thing that was bothering me, so I actually looked up where Hollywood, Florida was on yeah. Google Maps, and i uh, kind of embarrassed at my lack of geography knowledge <laughs> because uh, it and Clearwater are a good bit apart. They're 270 miles <laughs> apart. <laughs> Clearwater is... I knew Clearwater was around St. Petersburg, and I thought that uh, that Hollywood was down a little bit south of Sarasota, which is, you know, they're, they're within a couple hours of each other, but Hollywood is actually right around the uh, Miami area, right, okay. which I've never been to uh, Miami or Fort Lauderdale, so that area. So I, I would assume when they were in Hollywood, Florida, that would have been their Miami venue. Right, okay. And... um. I mean, a 270-mile trip here in the UK is basically from London to Scotland. So that's like the entire length of the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's about a four-hour car ride, it looks like. So. Uh, okay, so um, the Crockett Cup. We we did want to do the 86 uh, version of it, but it's very hard. That's incredibly difficult to find uh, on video, and it has no commentary. And... Um, you know, I'm not going to sit through three hours of <laughs> three hours of tag wrestling without any commentary. Um, no matter how much I love the NWA. <laughs> um, so we, uh, this is from I think the 10th and the 11th of April, um, 1987, which is a very interesting time uh, for the NWA. Um, it happens in uh, in the Baltimore Arena, as I just said. Tony Schiavone is our host. And he's flying solo, seemingly. Um, and there's 16,000 fans, he announces, um, which, depending on where you read, is about 50% or 40% wrong. <laughs> so uh, I think the first day got 8,000 fans, and the second day got 11,000. Um, so this is a two-day event. 24 teams uh, compete for a million dollars in cash. Um, our ring announcer is Gary Michael Capetta, and I think um, he may have actually taken over from Tom Miller by this point. I think Tom Miller might be gone. I think Starkey was his last show. So um, let me just uh, before we get into this, I'm going to pull up the full card here because um, we review we're reviewing here the um, Turner Home Video release, um, which is basically clipped to buggery. Would you agree with that, Chad? Yeah, it's 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 kind of I don't. I guess I really don't understand, I mean, obviously now, again, this goes back to where we're in a different era, where footage is just not readily available, and it, it was just a completely different mindset, but just to see a two-hour version where, I mean, we really did not get one complete match on, no. the, uh, on, on the whole video. So, uh, I thought it might be an idea before we get into what we actually see to what actually happened, to who the teams were competing. So, I'm, I'm just going to run these, uh, run down the teams here. Arn Anderson and Kevin Sullivan. Brad and Bob Armstrong. So, your, um, your uh, dad didn't uh, feel like going to see this one? Or your uncle? No, he did, he did <laughs> not make the uh, trek up to Baltimore for this uh, one. Um, Giant Barber and Isayo Takagi. Yeah, um, yeah, and apparently, according to Meltzer, um, this is uh, was was the first pro wrestling match ever for uh, Takagi. Um, yeah, he's still uh, he's still active. Is he really? Yeah, yeah, he he shows up uh, every once in a while. I know he uh, he was one of the few ones that when they had the All Japan. Noah split in yeah. 2000. Um, he stayed with All Japan, uh, so that kind of gave him uh, more notoriety, and he, uh, you know, made tape a lot more as a uh, a wrestler by the name of Arashi is kind of what I know him as in sort of the early 2000s. Um, and whatnot. So, but yeah, he's still. I, I haven't seen him in a few years, but uh, so I, did, I, I believe he's still active. Did um, in fact, I, I've actually pulled up the. Uh, I think this better than Wikipedia is the actual original 
uh, uh, newsletter from Meltzer where he actually runs down the results. So I'll do that quickly in a second. But does he ever any get? A, does he ever get any good? Because um, Meltzer absolutely crucifies him. Says he's uh, he says he's atrocious in in these matches. Yeah, I mean, I I would only categorize him as adequate. I mean, I I can't off the top of my head ever think of uh, you know a standout performance. Um, his his match in ROH is actually probably the most uh, one that comes to mind first, and it, it was okay. Um, and but nothing again. He's kind of the type of wrestler where I would say. You know, he's sort of the type of person where I watch him and, uh, and then, you know, you never, never think about it. There's, there's no reason really to go back and say, oh, I really want to watch that match again. So, so I'm just going to run down this card uh, really quickly and we'll, I guess, maybe the way to do this, because um, it's so badly clipped, is maybe pause for the ones that are actually on the tape. How's that? <laughs> okay. Um, Sounds good. So, and I'll just give you a quick summary of what Meltzer says. Um, so we have the first match is the, 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 the Thunder Feet uh, versus Bobby Jaggers and Rocky King, um, who are uh, we, we've seen Rocky Rocky King is a uh, kind of black lower lower card wrestler, really, basically a jobber. Um, he was subbing for Dutch Mantel. Um, and the, th- the Thunderfeet, uh, who are Joel Deaton and Gene Ligon, um, they uh, went over there in five minutes. Um, uh, Meltzer gives out a star, or one star. Then we get Bill Dundee and uh, Conga the Barbarian versus Mike Rotunda and Tim Horner. And I believe this is the first match that we get on the, on the tape. Yes. Uh, we, jo- we join it midway through. And it's pretty jarring, actually. I mean, we go straight from Tony, without any warning, really, to um, a kind of graphic showing that it's uh, Dundee and the Barbarian versus Tim Horner and Mike Rotundo. And then we're kind of right midway in the middle of the match. We don't really know what's going on. Um, now, I've I got a m- note here. What, what was Rotundo doing uh, tagging with Tim Horner? Um, who, I believe, was tagging with... Uh, Brad Armstrong at this point, so I guess they put Armstrong with his dad, and um, Horner was left on his own here. Right. But he, he um, one one quick thing I'll mention before we start the matches: the the actual commercial tape. Um, now, obviously, this shows from 1987, but one of the absolute dumbest things I thought was the beginning montage. I don't know if you got that with the yeah, cheesy. Yeah, yeah. 80s music and some of the action clips, uh, which was bad enough, and you also had some great uh, pictures of people in the crowd with some absolutely awful t-shirts <laughs> that I wonder ever survived. There was a, I know there was a Jim Crockett t-shirt and a Four Horsemen t-shirt, right. but then at the very end, they actually show who wins <laughs> the tournament, so they, they spoil the whole tape yeah. uh, within the first two minutes. On the clip, which I I could not, I couldn't believe my eyes as I was watching. I knew who won, but uh, it, I would have been furious if I'd have been a little kid and already would have seen this. Yeah, the, um, the editing in general is just a disaster zone on this tape. Um, yeah, but but anyway, what we uh, as we go into this, I think we um, the heels are on top, and we see the barbarian get a big boost on Matundo. Um, after some double teaming, there's a chin lock, um, then a brief hope spot, um, and a double clothesline between Barbarian and Rotundo. Uh, Barb goes on top, misses a headbutt, uh, Rotundo gets a hot tag to Horner, um, then he does a flying crossbody on Barbarian, but gets nailed by Dundee. Now, I didn't see, was there a foreign object there or something? But we get yeah, it, I mean, I, I, I guess the uh, connotation was he had the brass knucks or something kind of wrapped around his fist with a foreign object. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, that, if there wasn't a brass tuck there, that's a very weak three count. Because I, I think that's the only bit of punishment that Horner got was that one punch. So it's a bit strange that he went down in, in just one punch. 
Yeah, I, I, I didn't see right offhand, but I would assume that he wrapped his fist. And I, yeah, I'm just walk, uh, watching it back, and yeah, it's clear that he has an object on his fist. Uh, you can't, of course, you can't tell quite what it is, but I guess it's Nux or something. It's kind of a black object that he wrapped around his fist before he landed the punch. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, it's difficult to explain just how clipped this tape is, but, I mean, there are, I think there are going to be plenty of things that I miss or don't quite see, um, because they happen so quickly, you know? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of jarring, again, now we're used, of course, in this day and age now, we've had, you know, pretty much 20-some-odd years of complete footage on almost everything we've seen or, you know, the natural commercial breaks uh, like in, in current WWE programming where if somebody spills to the outside, you go to a commercial break and then you come back and they're in a rest hold. So you sort of are conditioned to those sort of sequences. Here you're really thrown in uh, in most of these matches to right at the end of the heat and the yeah. comeback, uh, so you sort of have to create your own narrative to what the first three quarters of each match was, yeah. um, and then you only get a kind of, you know, in most of these matches, they're playing the Southern Tag formula, so you get the sort of bunkhouse finish with everybody coming in and a lot going on, but there's really no substance behind it because you don't see what built to that. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting point that, I mean, you, sometimes it might be tempting to think that the early stages of a match are quite boring when you get, you know, the slow build and, the, you know, not a lot's going on. But um, seeing uh, seeing this sort of thing shows you how important that stuff is, you know, for building the psychology of any, you know, telling the story and building the psychology of any wrestling match. You need that yeah. stuff at the start. Um, anyway, we get a hard cut here with no warning at all to Chad's favourite, Jimmy Valiant, um, and his brand new partner here, Lasertron, <laughs> um, wearing, uh, wearing some uh, space gear. Um, and he's against Sheska Wesley, and he's got a new partner as well, Tijo Khan. Um, now, this was actually the, the next match on the uh, card as well, so uh, we're actually seeing the matches as they went out here. Um, now, if you don't know, Lasertron is Hector Guerrero. Um, did you know that? I, I did. I, well, I looked. At, I had to look it up. <laughs> I was. I was. I did not know that right offhand. I don't know how um, long he stayed as the Lasertron, but between uh, Hector portraying Lasertron and, of course, the golly Gooker, he has a pretty good uh, one-two combination of the most obscure gimmicks. Our personas in wrestling history. Yeah, and no, Meltzer actually makes a note about Lasertron. He says that um, basically everybody knew that he was Hector, and he claims that there was a loud Hector chant, Hector, Hector, Hector from the crowd, um, and that since everyone knew who he was, well, what was the point of having him in the gimmick? Now, I didn't hear a Hector chant, but then of course... Yeah, I didn't hear that, and I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I will defend kind of my southern states but it to me it was not permanently obvious i mean maybe when he did the lucha forearm roll spot it i mean that definitely was a kind of a lucha based move that you could have gathered from but i mean to me it wasn't pertinent obvious just based off the two minutes that we saw here that it was hector guerrero under the hood yeah not not to me either um as we join the action, the heels are in a lot of disarray, bumping into each other, and uh, they're not really well coordinated. Finally, they get on top and double team the boogie woogie man. Um, Khan gets a few headbutts in uh, on Valiant. Uh, Shaska does the same, and uh, then he does some of his heel dancing. He still hasn't learned not to dance as a heel. I'm not happy about that. Um, Lasertron uh, does the spot that you just mentioned, the forward roll into the, um, is that flying uh, Tito Santana style fist there? Well, uh, Tony called it a double forearm, and it kind of looked like he did try to sort of connect his arms to hit it with a double. He didn't get, I don't think, quite the coordination he wanted. 
It looked oh, like a cross body I would, to me. I would attribute that to his opponents because in, in just the two minutes we saw, <laughs> uh, Shaska and Khan were just a complete mess in this match. Terrible, um, out of position a lot of times. Um, in, the, in that spot with Hector, that was probably the best looking spot on Shaska actually, but in other other areas, it just seemed like they were out of position in the way. A real clunky match, just based off yeah. the two minutes we saw. No, I absolutely agree. It was uh, there was some pretty awful stuff here. Um, then what happens? Um, he he pins Shaska uh, uh, with this move, um, but Valiant is in the ring distracting the ref uh, for some reason. Um, uh, Lasertron dumps uh, Shaska over the top. Which under NWA rules, 1987 is an instant DQ. So not only is this a pretty shoddy-looking match, but we get um, we get that finish as well. Yeah, the finish was terrible. Um, <laughs> I did love that. I think this may have been our first appearance of Randy. Uh, don't call me Pee Wee Anderson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who looked <laughs> absolutely with the with the huge uh, hairdo and. As soon as he, uh, as soon as Laser Tron dumps Shaska, he kind of starts windmilling, does a circle with his hands going crazy, calling for the bell. And, uh, like, of course, then you cut to Jimmy losing his shit in the middle of the ring. So that, that was comical, but, uh, this, this was terrible. And I, I, I kind of don't understand how, again, in every match we have where all four guys are in there and it's out of control. So, you know, Randy Anderson deemed this moment when Lasertron had Shaska pinned as the one moment where he was going to enforce the rules and yeah. get in between Jimmy uh, Valiant going after Khan for coming in to break up the pin. So that was also stupid. So this was just a dumb uh, waste of the limited time on this videotape. Randy, don't call me Pee Wee Anderson. Probably apart from Tommy Young, is one of the most mobile referees, isn't he? He has that really... Uh, he yeah, has he, he has just... I don't know uh, what... he He's very... Some of his expressions really kind of resonate. Like, it, you know, to this day, I haven't seen the match in, I know, a few years, but I couldn't... I can always remember the first thing I think of him when, uh, well, two things when, when I think of Randy Anderson. One is when he got fired and he came out with his kids <laughs> to uh, ask back his job from the NWO. Uh, that's, that's a great segment on Nitro where Kevin Nash is just at his absolute uh, dick best. Uh, his kids come out and his wife, Randy Anderson's and Kevin Nash is asking if it's the family feud and just <laughs> constantly rags on him. And then the other moment uh, is during the Lex Luger Hulk Hogan Nitro match where Luger wins the, wins the belt and uh, has Hogan in the torture rack and Hogan gives up and uh, it's just a great moment where Randy Anderson kind of puts both hands on his head, on the top of his head, like he can't believe it, and then rings for the bell, and he's yeah. in complete shock that Hogan gave up. So, uh, I'm that, thinking that he he's always, an interesting referee. He always stayed face, right? I think Nick Patrick was the one who turned heel. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. he was the one. Uh, he was the NWO referee, and that actually kind of plays into that whole... Um, that... Randy Anderson family angle where he got fired, that sort of ties into Nick Patrick turning towards the NWO referee also. That was all intertwined. So, so um, the next, in fact, the next match on the actual night itself was um, Jimmy and Ron Garvin against the Italian Stallion and Ricky Lee Jones. Um, obviously, uh, the Garvins win. Um, not a lot of uh, talk there. Although he does have um, a long note about the Mulkies here. And about how the Mulkey, how it was insane that the Mulkies weren't on this card. Um, because apparently in April 1987, Mulkey Mania was running wild. <laughs> um, this was around the time they got their famous win against the Gladiators. 
And um, in fact, our buddies there, uh, Flair Chop, um, on the old school wrestling podcast, they have a whole show about Marky Mania. <laughs> so uh, track that down if you can find it. Um, but yeah, he says that uh, they basically got the biggest reaction of the... Um, uh, oh no, sorry, I, I'm reading this wrong. They were on the car, but they 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 lost in the very next match. Todd Champion and oh, Danny Brown uh, beat Bill and Brandy Mulkey, and um, he says that apart from Nikito and Dusty and the Row Warriors, um, the biggest pop of the night went to the Mulkeys. Um, so they should have used that in some way. He's saying that you know it would have been an idea to send them over to you know make the crowd happy. Um, so yeah, if you don't know the Mockies, they were a pair of jobbers um, who who got a win and uh, were a little sensation for a while. <laughs> They're really good at um, extravagant selling. The Mockies, especially um, uh, um, is it Ran- is it Randy Mocky? There's one of them who's really pale. Like he kind of uh, he he he's the one um, he's the one who takes really good bumps. I uh, honestly, uh, Mulky Mania has not ran wild uh, in the uh, Campbell household. I can say that. So uh, I'm not. I, I, I honestly have only watched probably a couple of Mulky matches in my life. Next match we have uh, Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez, who I think are the tag champs at this point. Still, I think uh, I might be wrong. Um, and they're against. Uh, they t- they take down Thunderfeet, and that's a second round match. If you if you look at the way this tournament is uh, scheduled, a lot of the bigger teams don't enter until the second round. Um, so Luger and uh, Blanchett, the Russians, the Rock and Roll Express, um, they were a number of uh, seeded teams. And I think if you're a seeded team, you didn't have to uh, do a round one match. You just came straight in a round two. Um, so obviously Thunderfeet qualified and Rude and Fernandez uh, beat them in four minutes. Um, then we get the Road Warriors. We still haven't got to them. No, yeah, we get the Road Warriors against uh, Karna Watley. They take them out in three minutes. Uh, the Midnight Express. Uh, more on them in a second. Against. Hold on, didn't we see this match against uh, Jim and Ron Garvin? Did we get to see that? Yeah, we saw that. We saw Hold on. So what are we missing then? Uh, Bob and Brad Armstrong versus the Russians. Versus the Russians, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so the next match that we have on the tape is uh, the Russians versus Bab- Bob and Brad Armstrong. I've got a note here. How old is Bob here, do you think? Oh, he's probably, may honestly not be as old as you think. He may be, uh, I would say, late, uh, maybe early 40s. Okay, I looked it up. He's born in 1939, so putting putting the accounting on the spot to do some quick math. So, yeah, he would have been older than I thought. He would have been 48, actually. He's got a kind of um, he's got a kind of Ken Patera in 87 vibe going on. Yes, that's exactly when he was in that bear hug. I I made a comment with that. I was like, he looked just like Ken Patera, which I'd never made the connection before. I guess it was the hairdo and. The facial expression, but look, yeah. look just like him, Patera. And I'm kind of also, I mean, Dylan won't thank me for saying this, but kind of like also a 70s wrestler in the late 80s setting as well. I mean, he kind of still has a 70s vibe about him, would you Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, this was, I mean, Bob in Smoky Mountain is an excellent character. It's kind of the old guard, grizzled uh, commissioner that's not going to take any crap from Jim Cornette. Uh, I mean, I don't know where he, what he was doing gimmick-wise in Continental or some of the other territories around this time where he's able to stretch his uh, limbs out, but just in the way he wrestled this match, he seemed kind of um, out of place. Yeah. I will say though he was over though with the crowd. They seemed to be in into Bob uh, Armstrong. He, I, I guess he was popular down there, right? It was. Well, I mean, I, th- I think Bob is uh, a kind of. Uh, it's again, it's tough, and this is something I will be biased on because you know Bob Armstrong was 
you know, I said this, I know, on multiple podcasts, but just to reiterate, Bob Armstrong and Mr. Wrestling 2 were my dad and granddad's favorite wrestlers growing up. Uh, my granddad went to the Cobb County Civic Center pretty much every time. My dad spent a lot of summers up in Marietta, and when he was there, he'd go to the wrestling in Marietta and some of the bigger shows at, like, the Atlanta uh, Civic Center. Um, so I know, I, I mean, Bob has a lot of cachet around here, uh, you know, definitely not a household name or anything or a big star, but if you're a wrestling fan, I think that grew up in the South in the seventies, uh, and early eighties. And even if in like continental in Alabama in the late eighties, and I would say even Tennessee in the nineties was Smoky Mountain. If you came up as a Smoky Mountain fan in Tennessee in the 90s, Bob Armstrong is really one of the characters that resonates and stays with you um, and has a, you know, a good reputation. Never a top, top guy, but somebody that could be positioned in there and not look totally out of place. I guess he had more charisma than his son, right? Yeah, I, I, I know just based on the promos. I mean, I'm most familiar with Bob Armstrong's Smoky Mountain promos, but uh, just based on that, he was a far superior promo. Uh, it, I mean, of all his sons, you see the Road Dog uh, has kind of the yeah. charisma on the mic, and that he took that the most from Bob. Now, um, just a point on uh, on Brad Armstrong in the newsletter. Uh, Meltzer goes as far as to say that Brad Armstrong is legit top three to five worker in the states at this point. So he really like he really thinks that Brad Armstrong's a uh, very good worker, which uh, like he's got this massive rep uh, among smart fans. Uh, Brad Armstrong, and I wonder if does it does it come from this time where uh, Meltzer was writing this sort of thing about him. Yeah, I know we talked about this on the Starcade show some, but I do believe that myth has kind of been um, debunked yeah. in the past few years where I don't think anybody would argue that Armstrong was a bad worker, but I don't think there's also any evidence with what we see now that he was one of the top three or five best workers in the States at any point in his career. Um, well, he plays facing uh, peril for most of this match. Um, there's a bear hug from uh, Pietrov. Um, Brad gets in a few drop kicks. Um, then uh, he gets uh, Ivan Koloff in a sleeper. But uh, Pietrov breaks it, and we get an instant DQ. And I've just written, what here? And then I realized that he actually had a chain. So, I mean, this is the speed which things happen on this tape. I couldn't even see the chain. Um, and it wasn't quite uh, clear to me that there was one. And this is hyped as a major upset by uh, Shivani. Um, so this is quite the push for the Armstrongs in this show. They've already gone... Uh, I think they've already gone over um, Arn Anderson and Kevin Sullivan. And now they've beaten the Russians. Um, and I guess the Russians are on the way down here. This is really the third and least version of the Russians. Yeah, the finish was kind of interesting because uh, it was set up the exact same way as the first match on the uh, tape with Dundee. Uh, Same exact spot where the baby face in the first match, it was Tim Horner. Here it was uh, Brad Armstrong has a sleeper. Uh, on the top, he's on the back of the opponent, and then the other guy comes in with a foreign object to uh, hit him, you know, basically just a punch with the foreign object, the chain or the nuts or whatever it was. So I thought it was kind of a good callback spot to hear the referee did see it and called him and disqualified him. I thought that was kind of interesting because I was ready, you know, as it was setting up and Ivan went for the big haymaker punch and missed, and Armstrong had to sleep on, and Petroff was coming in with the chain. I was ready to hate this finish because I was <laughs> like, well, we just saw the same exact thing yeah. uh, two matches ago. But again, uh, you know, that was a kind of clever finish, and also Randy Anderson was the referee here, 
And uh, nobody calls for the bell with more excitement, <laughs> I've discovered, than Randy Anderson. <laughs> He's going on for MVP. <laughs> Let's see. Um, so, so the next match here, um, and uh, I, I'm just looking. They really messed around with this. They, they didn't really, they didn't show us these matches in order either to add insult to injury. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm really quite lost here with, uh, with the list from Meltzer and what we actually saw. But let's go us on the tape. The Midnight Express versus um, Jimmy and Ronnie Garvin. And uh, we should pause because the Midnight Express here is now finally the Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton version of the Midnights. Uh, because Dennis Condry is no longer in JCP. Um, now, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I found out from Meltzer, and you can um, remind us what um, Cornette says about this on the on the shoot interviews. Uh, I've actually, I, I've seen that shoot interview recently, but my um, my mind's gone a bit blank as to what he actually said. Um, apparently, Condry was trying to get out of contract, um, and in in, the, in initially, this is a few weeks ago, um, a few weeks before this newsletter, he says that he was either fired or or quit. Um, and Stan, there was talk of Stan Lane coming in and actually tagging with uh, Steve Kern uh, for one last time during the show. Um, and it, I guess because Connery was gone, they decided that Eaton needed a new partner. And um, they were looking at Stan Lane and they were looking at uh, Steve Kern and they were looking at a couple of other people as well. And they decided that um, Lane would be the best partner for him. Um, it it also uh, in the next uh, in the update he's got kind of a news update about what happens to Condry and um, he says that um, for all intents and purposes Condry just disappeared that he um, he's gone completely AWOL and he no showed a number of dates without any explanation at all even after his wife said he was going to be there and there was a lot of talk of Condry talking to the WWF at this point um, although the WWF office said that they'd had no contact with him at all. So it's a bit of a mystery, um, according to the newsletter. So that's what I've got. That, uh, what you just said is kind of what Cornette... Um, I'm basing this off his 2000, um, year 2000 shoot interview with RF Video, his first long uh, mm-hmm. form shoot with them. But yeah, I, I think they were boarding a plane, I want to say to maybe Denver or somewhere, and... According to Cornette, he said, like, he just got off the plane. Dennis was supposed to meet him there. He was nowhere to be found. They uh, called his wife or whatever, and Cornette said he didn't really know if his wife knew or just played dumb, but she said she didn't know where he was. And he kind of hinted that, it, it, you know, he said he didn't know specifically the reasoning, but he did hint that cocaine... Um, you know, usage might have played a part in Condry's disappearance, but overall, this does seem kind of one of the most, I guess, muddled mysteries still in wrestling history, where we don't have a full story. Uh, you know, one of Condry's still alive and has done stuff, but I don't think he's ever really talked on the record uh, exactly what happened. I don't think we've had the full story. Just it's, it's, it the, is, sort of that he was sped up and just left. But it's bizarre because like the midnight at this point are still hot. It's not like they're on the way down or on the way out or anything. They're still right in the middle of their run here. Um, yeah. And Conway just disappeared. <laughs> right. um, anyway, this is not necessarily a change for the worse. I mean, I do like Dennis Condry. I think he's great at the um, kind of dick healing. He's really good at that stuff. Um, but Stan Lane is. Uh, you know, one of the great tag wrestlers, and obviously Bob Eaton is arguably the greatest of all tag wrestlers, so putting them together can't be a bad thing, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think I may be higher on Condry than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a real big fan of Condry, but uh, obviously that's no slight with Stan either. Um, I mean, I, I really like both... Uh, iterations of the Midnights, so I, I'm certainly not disappointed to see Stan in there. Um, and this is, because, um, I mean, just to give you an idea of the time frame here, all of this stuff is from the newsletters that were published in the very week that this event t- took place, so 
this match would have been one of Stan Lane's very first as a, as a member of the Midnight Express, um, if not the first. I, th I think they maybe did one at the date, um, a TV taping, like uh, three or four days before this. So, you know, they're very new as a team together. Um, and noticeably, Shivani doesn't make any mention of the fact that um, Connery's gone or anything. Like, they don't... It's just kind of treated as if... Um, do, do they do they make reference to the fact that Stan Lane is quite new here? No. I, I know... I mean, basically, the only thing introductory uh, that I remember recalled Shivani saying was when Stan Lane did his savant kick. And Shivani was talking about his black belt uh, that he'd been talking about, you know, that he had these black belt skills. So, but it wasn't, there was no, you know, this is a new partner or any uh, mention of that. So, so we joined them, um, just, just to mention this match in, uh, in full ran for six minutes, uh, six minutes, 23 seconds. And I think we probably see the last two minutes of it here, because as we join, there's general chaos. Um, the Garvins have uh, Cornette's racket, his tennis racket. It's, an, it's a nice snazzy goal one tonight. Um, and uh, uh, what happens here? We get that um, uh, Savak kick uh, that you mentioned. Um, and Ronnie Garvin gets a couple of his trademark jabs in uh, on lane. Goes for a pile driver on the outside. Uh, but Cornette nails him with the tennis racket, which apparently is enough... Um, for, for him to be counted out for 10. <laughs> uh, he does try to get back in, but it's one of those um, scenarios where they uh, where, you know, he's rolling in too late. Uh, it's already reached 10. So a, a pretty lame count out finish here. I, I kind of I like what we saw um, at the very beginning. Uh, the notes I have with Precious chasing Cornette. Uh, Cornette is really hilarious at one point where he's trying to escape and he has a shoe yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that <laughs> fell off when they tried to get him. He has a shoe in his hand and he's trying to kind of get over the guardrail and he's freaking out. And then he fakes a heart attack. <laughs> so he starts, he's on the guardrail and then he starts holding his heart and falls down to the floor. So I, I enjoyed that. I mean, for what this was, which was pretty much a straight schmoz type match. Uh, I, I thought it was well done. The moves were executed well. Um, and Ronnie Garvin was joke, got some of his punches, you know, so it was, it was fine for the three or four minutes, whatever, that we saw of it. I, I should mention that Meltzer really liked this match, and he gives it three and a half stars. And of his paragraph, he spends about um, three or four lines talking just about um, the... Um, Cornette's uh, whack with a racket on Ron Garvin. He really liked the. Uh, he was like that blow is incredible, um, and he he says that three stars, and then he adds an entire half star just for Cornette's blow with a tennis racket. <laughs> the racket shot is fine. I, I I don't know. I mean, on the foreign object spectrum, I really don't have a problem with a tennis racket because I would think getting whacked in the back with a racket. And then I know, I don't know at this point in time, but I know in some points they have alluded that it was loaded or whatever. So that kind of adds to it as well. So now we get, um, now we get, oh, I'm not sure what to do here. We Let's just, uh, let me just tell you what the next couple of matches that happen are. We get uh, Bob and Brad Armstrong against uh, Arn Anderson and Kevin Sullivan. Um... Uh, which we didn't get to see, and I thought I'd uh, I'd mention at this point that um, there's a lot of news in the book uh, from Meltzer at this point about um, JCP. That there's a lot of rumours about Crockett taking over Florida at this time, around March, April '87, um, which uh, apparently around uh, the time of this event actually went through, um, and uh, it's quite fun to see Meltzer going through all the different people that. Um, they probably take or keep. Um, Kevin Sullivan, who I've just mentioned, would uh, be taken on as the assistant uh, booker uh, under Dusty, and they'd keep uh, Gordon Soley as a general um, as a general member of the broadcast team. So maybe we'll be seeing some more Soley soon. Um, and 
um, you, they were basically going to keep most of the most of the guys from the roster, and um, Mike Graham would keep some percentage of uh, gates from the territory. So that's a bit of news from this uh, this period. So you can see the nationalisation of uh, of the territories taking place um, at this point because hot on the heels of that, another massive event happens around this point. Um, which is that Bill Watts finally sells up Mid-South uh, Territory um, to Crockett, um, which comes as a real bombshell. This actually happens on the April the 13th newsletter, one day after this event took place. And um, you can tell that Meltzer's in some shock, because he's a real... Uh, I don't know if you ever read the newsletters, but he's a real Mid-South Watts mark, you know. He yeah. Loves, he yeah. loves that territory. And you can tell that he doesn't know what to think because he likes the NWA as well but he's pretty shell-shocked and um, he even says I don't even know if I can give any analysis at this point <laughs> um, but uh, one of the major consequences of this is that Paul Bosch got pretty annoyed at this deal because he wasn't in on it and um, from that from that week Houston switched from being a um, Crockett town to a WWF town um, so even though they acquired the Mid-South Territory, they lost Paul Bosch and uh, his booking of Houston. Um, and I've never actually seen anyone say a bad word about Paul Bosch ever. Uh, he's, he's one guy who um, seems to, you know, have a squeaky clean reputation with pretty much everyone. Um, I mean, have you ever seen anyone uh, diss Paul Bosch, Chad? Um, I would say on the promoter spectrum, he's pretty uh, golden with that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, and at this point it's not clear what's going to happen, but um, it's rumoured that Bill Watts is going to retire from wrestling forever, and uh, and he doesn't know what's going to happen with, um, he talks about how this would impact Japan, because Crockett had a, like a almost near zero policy on um, touring of Japan, um, whereas uh, Watts was quite happy to let people go for three or four months, uh, like obviously you've seen DBRC crop up in or Japan from time to time, um, and he also um, wonders about what's going to happen with the talent, you know, are they going to keep them all, or are some people going to go to WWF, and as we'll see, um, they do more or less keep most of them, don't they, uh, apart from DDRC, I think, I think he's the only kind of major headline star who um, doesn't come to Crockett after this episode. Yeah, I mean, Terry Taylor was a big... Uh he was a big star, and, um... Did he go to uh, WWF as well? Well, yeah, I mean, he went as the Red Rooster. I yeah, know that yeah, was... Yeah, I remember, yeah. That was, uh... I guess that was 88. Yeah. But, of course, we've already seen Terry Taylor on Crockett shows, haven't we? So, so it's kind of like, um... You know, and he'd work Florida some as well, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I think his main... He was sort of, in the watch footage that I saw uh, the most of, is mostly the 86 uh, right up to the end stage. So you have some early Sting, uh, Terry Gordy, Steve Williams are the main players kind of there. And DBIC every once in a while, but he was sort of getting phased out. Yeah. And Terry Taylor, at that point in time, he sort of kind of was the old... Uh, I mean, it's, I guess maybe the best comparison would be somebody like DDP and yeah. uh, WCW in like 97, 98, kind of the old standby uh, flag carrier for the company, <clears throat> baby face that would always run out and break things up and get in the middle of stuff. I guess uh, Sting would be, if he came as part of that package, you know, he'd probably be the biggest star that we'll see. Um, as you know, coming from that, but um, there's a there's a lot of talk at this point that it's going to remain as a separate company, um, but as we'll see, that did not happen, <laughs> and we got our very first invasion angle. But that, that's uh, that's to look forward to. Um, from the Florida purchase, I guess we already we already have Lex Luger. Um, in fact, he's teaming. He's already a member of the Horsemen by this point, um, tagging with Tully Blanchard, and. Um, uh, yeah, I don't really see what they're getting. Uh, they, they're getting there. They've already got Dusty. They've already got Lex Luger. They've already got uh, Kevin Sullivan. 
I don't know what other talent would have uh, would have come from Florida um, in 1987. Maybe maybe we can have a look at that in closer detail at a later point. Um, so uh, what else do we have? Um, where do we get up to? We have oh yeah. So on on the videotape, um, Gary Michael Capetto is out, um, and uh, so is Ricky Morton. And uh, he mentions that Morton has a uh, injured his eye, and he's got a detached retina. So the Rock and Roll Express have uh, had to withdraw um, from the tournament. Now, is this the uh, is this the moment you were talking about, Chad? Yeah, uh, this was very great because they call Robert out there, and uh, GMC just basically explains the situation like you just said about Ricky Morton, and uh, you know Robert doesn't say anything. <laughs> he just sort of they say he's forfeiting. And uh, Robert gives a little wave to the crowd and then walks straight to the back. Which <laughs> I, th I thought we were going to get a, you know, at least a little promo of him saying, you know, Ricky's hurt right now, but when he comes back, we'll run rough shot over everybody, or you know, just something. But uh, I, I don't know if if they paid for him to attend these shows or if Robert was just in the area and was on tour with them or whatever and came up with them for that show but this was I, absolutely uh, hilarious that I mean literally all he did was walk to the ring give a little wave and then walk straight back I, I think Robert Gibson just didn't like to work more than he had to like if he didn't have to say anything he wouldn't do you know yeah. what I mean like the, if they gave him the option I'm sure he'd have said I'd rather not get on the mic I, it's it's I don't, I don't know I mean it's kind of weird because I mean Robert at the uh, now, Robert has been at a few indie shows that I've been to in the past few years around the area, and I mean, he—you talk about somebody that sells his gimmicks. Like he always has a gimmick table set up with DVDs, T-shirts, like Rock and Roll Express headbands or whatever. All this crap. <laughs> And, I mean, he really works the table, taking pictures. Wow. Hassling, hassling people all the time to buy his stuff. So I don't know if it's 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 kind of weird to see because he has a lot more charisma, you know, as a 50-year-old man selling his uh, bandanas to kids <laughs> at this indie show with 200 people than, like, in some of these big settings. I mean, I, I I like Robert Gibson, and I think he did compliment Ricky Morton, but certainly here where Ricky Morton was not there, it would have been nice to hear something or, you know, just anything more than what he did. Uh, so that was very humorous to me. Thanks a lot, Chad. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>